This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we bring you our Insider Town Hall series, speaking with key decision makers in Congress and the state legislature about issues Indivisibles care about. Today, Congressman Rick Larson. In our wide-ranging discussion, we talk about his experiences during the insurrection, get his thoughts on impeachment, COVID recovery, and how we as Indivisibles might work together on common goals with the new federal government controlled by Democrats. This conversation was recorded live on Zoom on the evening of Tuesday, December 12th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Insider Town Hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible podcast. Thank you so much to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network. Also, Julian Zievsky, Robin Gittleman, Luis Pate, and Kevin Jones. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge that we live and work on the ancestral homelands of many indigenous peoples throughout the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge that uh, we learned that Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has reported that she has tested positive for COVID after sheltering with fellow House members during the insurrection. We are sending her thoughts of strength and wishes for a full recovery. And so tonight's Congressional Insider Town Hall is the first town hall since the Democrats took the Senate in the Georgia runoff. So this is a very special opportunity for us to speak with one of the outstanding members of our Democratic delegation to learn about his priorities in this new Congress, what he feels is possible now that the Democrats control the White House, the House and the Senate. We are also going to be talking about how we as activists can best work together to achieve some common goals. Uh, Before we get started, we will be devoting the last 15 to 20 minutes to your questions. So if you do have some questions, uh, feel free at any point to enter those into the chat bar. And with that, I will introduce our guest, Congressman Rick Larson. He was just reelected to an 11th term representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. This includes Island and San Juan counties, runs from Bellingham in the north to Linwood in the south. He is a member of the powerful House Armed Services Committee, as well as the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, where he is the chair of the Subcommittee on Aviation. uh, Congressman Rick Larson, it is so nice to have you this evening. How are you, sir? I'm I'm uh, I'm doing well. Can I can I correct your biography? I actually think the transportation and infrastructure committee is powerful as well. Please, um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> They're both very very powerful. I did not mean to short one or the other, so I probably should <laughs> yeah. have put a yes. Uh, <laughs> I spend most of my time on that committee. I'd like to think that. I also want to uh, echo um, your uh, thoughts uh, about uh, Pramila and for her um, recovery. I had COVID nineteen um, over the. Uh, Christmas break. I was in isolation for 11 days, actually one day beyond the CDC guidelines. I got my get out of COVID jail free card on January 2nd. Uh, And I would say I had severely mild symptoms. I I really wasn't impacted physically much at all. And it can be, but at the same time, um, my neighbor in Everett, I was actually isolated out here in the DC area my neighbor in Everett died um, mm. after getting a positive test the same day I got a positive test. He died six days later. Mm. It just goes to show, I mean, COVID-19 is serious and we need to continue to take it seriously. I know most of your people on the podcast are doing that. I serve with members of Congress who still aren't taking it seriously. And, um, uh, you know, we all just need to continue to do our, our part wearing masks and practice social distancing. I want to thank everyone for, for your um efforts to get past this uh, 
past the virus. I do want to unpack your thoughts on that uh, a little more fulsomely in just a moment. And, and I'll just note that this has been an enormously difficult, I don't think I have to note, this has been an enormously difficult number of days uh, in the history of our nation. I would like to start our conversation by talking about uh, the insurrection at the Capitol. And first and foremost, um, we are so grateful that you and your colleagues and your staff are all safe. And I, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share uh, what your experiences were on that day. Yeah, so uh, not, not to sort of give the biography of the day, um, so I'm not quite sure how to start. So I'll, I will just start at the beginning. Um, I take the metro in uh, when I'm in D.C. I take the metro into the Capitol, get off of Capitol South. And um, I take the red line. Uh, there were many Trump people on the metro. Uh, thankfully, most of them were wearing masks. Um, they seem to be in good spirits. They seem in a good mood. I mean, they seem very friendly. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just sort of setting this up because then the 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 march took place and in, in down the D.C. streets and the images that we saw of the march were were generally peaceful. It didn't look all that different than many other marches. And then the Save Our Country rally or whatever the heck it was, most of that was going off without a hitch until the president spoke and incited these folks to mar literally march on the Capitol and attempt to stop the constitutionally directed process that we have in our democratic republic. It was an insurrection. I go further. I, these, are, these are domestic terrorists. They've, we've only, in the 20 years I've been in Congress, there's only one other time I recall that we've evacuated the Capitol building, and that was on September 11th, 2001, when foreign terrorists attacked this country. And so I have no problem tell, saying that um, these people were domestic terrorists. Are all of them? No, we have a very specific definition of what the law is on domestic terrorism. But surely some of these folks um, fulfill the requirements of that law and should be treated as such. I was in my office, um, not in the Capitol building. I want to be really clear about that. I don't want to play up the excitement of the, my day because um, I was not in the Capitol building like Pramila Jayapal was and others. I was in my office in the Rayburn office building. My office is on the other, like literally the other side of the Rayburn office building, as far away from the Capitol building as you can get. But I could hear the sirens. I could hear the helicopters. We were getting notices, alerts from the Capitol police to shelter in place, lock the doors and kind of eerily orders to be quiet, to stay quiet, so that if folks got in the building and they were going down the halls, they couldn't hear people. They didn't, we, the Capitol Police didn't want them to hear people in the offices, which would make those offices targets. Um, so it was, it was a very tense day, um, very frightening, you know, even for me, although I wasn't in the, in the Capitol building. I will say that too, let's not forget these young staff members that we um, that we hire, that we pay very little to, frankly, relative for, for the responsibility that they get and their dedication to our democracy is awe-inspiring for me. Uh, and they're really, you know, they're really at risk as well. And so while his focus is on some members, our members of Congress. I mean, we can't forget the staff folks who kind of make the place, you know, go. And um, uh, I had two staff members in my office with me that day. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to 
betray a confidence. Uh, it, it was it was nerve rattling for them as well. But again, they were in the office with me, not in the Capitol building. I think that looking back just over the last week, you know, I'm angry about my colleagues who, um, some, some of whom, some of whom um, fomented this. I'm uh, still a little bit scared. I traveled today, flew today and uh, had a, a security person with me at the airport to ensure my safety until I got on the plane. Um, it's not something we do usually as a house member. And I'm, uh, and I'm sad as well. I'm sad I have, I work with people who don't respect the constitution, they don't respect the democratic republic. Um, and uh, I'm also hopeful because the number of people who reached out to me, to my staff, um, far outweighed any of the trolls that I'll, I will say also reached out <laughs> in a very negative way. Yeah. Um, but we have our work cut out for us over the next week just to get to the inauguration. I think uh, you know it will it will happen just like January sixth and the affirmation of the electoral votes. There was no doubt in my mind all day that the end result would be Congress affirming the electoral count. No matter what happened, we were going to get that done, and uh, no matter what, we will inaugurate the Biden Harris team as uh, uh, President Biden, President like Biden as a forty sixth president next week. I'm very confident of that, and I look forward to it. I will just reiterate uh, again, and thank you for for sharing all of that. We are so grateful for your safety, and especially as you mentioned, your staff. Um, Speaker, and the reason why you are back in D.C. as opposed to home right now is because Speaker Pelosi moved forward with articles of impeachment on Monday. They are likely to pass in the House on Wednesday. We know this is a very fluid situation. Uh, Representative Jim Clyburn has advocated holding off on sending these articles when they pass to the Senate until after Biden's first 100 days so as to not have to uh, have impeachment consume the Senate during that time. Others have said that the time could perhaps be split. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the Senate will decide what they how they want to approach it. Um, the, and the, uh, uh, you know, the new Senate majority leader will um make some decisions about that, hopefully in consultation with the uh, the White House, the new White House and with Speaker Pelosi. Uh, I do think it's, in, uh, you know, it is a balance um, because you don't want, you both don't want the Senate to be consumed with this when there's the opportunity to get a Secretary of State who cares about alliances and diplomacy, a housing and urban development uh, um, Secretary that cares about um, equity and in housing um, across the country. Uh, you know, you want an EPA administrator who cares about fighting for climate change. And the rules of the Senate are such that when you do impeachment, that's what you do. Right? You don't do anything else. They could split, you know, morning impeachment, afternoon confirmation hearings. They could do that. Um, I think more and more there's a feeling, and I support this, more and more there's a feeling in our caucus, in the Democratic House caucus, that we pass these and send them immediately to the Senate and, and just have it, you know, and make it a Senate. The Senate has to deal with it one way or the other. I'm interested in your sense of the, I guess, the mood uh, among Republicans right now. So the news is today that Liz Cheney and, and a few other GOP House members are now supporting impeachment. Mitch McConnell appears to be ready to give his blessing. 
what is your sense of GOP movement toward impeachment and conviction? The on, on impeachment in the House, uh, it, it could be up to 20, but maybe at least 10 um, uh, Republican members uh, who vote for impeachment. The interestingly, the minority leader uh, McCarthy basically, well, he said they're not going to whip the vote. That is there. This is not going to be a vote of the party. It's going to be a vote of conscience, conscience. And so, um, you know, I am I'm in as interested as you are to see how many folks will will be part of that. Um, I'm certainly voting for impeachment again uh, on the Democratic side. Um, and then with regards to the Senate, the McConnell's comments, I don't have them verbatim, uh, but, you know, just sort of paraphrasing, he kind of, you know, alluded to the fact that he might just free the GOP members in the Senate to vote how they want to vote on this. Um, you need 67 votes for impeachment, obviously. If it happens before the election, uh, before the inauguration, there would be a vacancy and Pence would become president for a day or whatever. If it happens afterwards, uh, you know, the value in that is that you prevent President Trump from uh, running for federal office ever again. Now I will, and I'm all for that. I will say this, there may be other reasons why Trump won't be able to run for federal office or any other office again in, in the future, um, given the uh, investigations that are underway currently and ones that may occur in the future. But um, it's an interesting dynamic in, this, in, the, in the Republican party right now. It's, I will say this, though, I want to let folks know. It's like, I'm as interested, as a Democrat, I'm as interested in the Republicans sort of giving an autopsy of the Democratic Party and hearing their views of the Democratic Party as much as Republicans are interested in hearing the views from Democrats of the Republican Party. Like, there's no interest. So um, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to kind of either predict what will happen with Republicans or tell them what they should do because they, they ultimately will have to live with their decision. And, and frankly, there are some of my Republican colleagues who are more than happy to continue to live with Trump. And, and uh, that's my, that's my, that's my bigger problem right now, frankly, in the house of representatives. Can I, yeah, well, let me drill down on that a little bit, if I may, uh, because we know that the FBI has begun making arrests of people who committed the actual insurrection, but I'm wondering how you feel about those people in power, particularly the members of Congress and others who encouraged this and, and how you feel that they should be held responsible. Yeah. So first off, let me, uh, I want to commend the FBI, uh, the rank and file cap U S Capitol police, uh, most of them, uh, two that we know of that are, are uh, on suspension, um, and, uh, and many others who are continuing to conduct investigations. I think the number now is around 160 people have been charged from everything, everything from trespassing to things that are much more serious uh, as well. And uh, the word is that that number will grow geometrically. Uh, so uh, the, we're not done on that score. With regards to members of Congress, um, I think it, it's a little more difficult because it's um, the, we, under the constitution, the house controls who can be in the house. So that's why we can have an ethics committee and I have voted to expel um, members in my time here uh, for, uh, for a variety of things. Um, so given a sort of a blanket, we should expel members of Congress who fomented this. We have to prove it. And it can't be that I'm angry at one member or that, this member or that member. Uh, you know, we go through 
what is essentially a fact finding uh, and then a, basically a, a trial that's kind of on the floor of the house that only we do. It doesn't go to the Senate because it's just about house members. It's a rather involved process. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it, but it's this is going to be a leadership decision, um, I think, because if you do that, then when do you want us to get to fighting climate change? Uh, when do you want us to get to passing the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, which we're going to do? When do you want us uh, to get to um, passing employment uh, non-discrimination? Uh, I can go down a list of things. And so you have to, the, the, hate to, hate to make it sound like this, but you have to balance what is the absolute most important thing you want us to do. Um, in the 365 days and 24 hour hours, seven days a week that we have. Uh, and uh, especially under COVID-19, which hamstrings our ability to, to actually have hearings and, and vote and things. So uh, I, I, I'm with folks on the sentiment um, and we'll probably pursue something. I just don't know what it's going to be, but, um, uh, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll be looking at something. It is, as you say, a very difficult balance uh, because there is limited time to get things done uh, during the time that we have the trifecta right now. And that is something that I want to come back to in just a moment. Before we move on from this, I will ask you, um, we know that the threat of violence is ongoing between now and Inauguration Day. Uh, you're the chair of the Aviation Subcommittee, as I mentioned. Um, you recently proposed some safety protocols for flights in and out of D.C. Uh, tell us what the, what those are. Yeah. So, uh, and just to um, kind of expand a little bit on your question, just to let folks know, as chair of the a Aviation Subcommittee, we have oversight over the Federal Aviation Administration. We don't have oversight over a lot of other things, um, a lot of other agencies as well. So this, that's why I focus on this issue of aviation alone. And uh, I'm very supportive of, of what other committees are, are looking at and, and that are doing. So um, even though we don't have oversight over the Federal Air Marshal Service, which is a, a TSA function, uh, I think we need to increase the number of Federal Air Marshals on flights between say you know, this Friday and the Friday after the inauguration. Um, and not just the DC area airports, there's three of them, you know, DCA, uh, National, uh, Dulles and Baltimore, uh, Thurgood Marshall. Um, but I would say expand that to Philadelphia, expand that to Charlotte and Richmond, expand that to maybe the furthest east airport in Ohio or Kentucky where people can drive in, fly there and drive in. So that, um, you know, we need to think a little more imaginatively about what airports people might fly into. So increased federal air marshals um, is one. I asked the FAA administrator yesterday to, when he meets with aviation stakeholders, which he did today, what, and, and to ask them, all airlines, to review their security protocols between the flight deck, that is the, the um, cockpit, and the cabin crew, the flight attendants, to be sure everybody's on the same page. Everybody knows what means what. Where's the line crossed when someone goes from, you know, an unruly bore to a danger? And so making sure that there's a, a standard that everyone is reminded of. Uh, and that, that's important uh, as well. Uh, we've talked about, well, we did discuss whether or not to require seatbelts uh, like 30 minutes after takeoff or longer and 30 minutes before landing or longer, just to keep people in their seats. 
um, a little bit longer. Uh, and that would be um, something, something unique and different uh, as well. Uh, finally, I just note that we asked the administrator to be more specific about what the penalties and sanctions are for disruption. And I say disruption, that's the general use of the term. We're talking about something more than just a disruption, obviously. But, um, uh, you know, he did come out and say, these aren't just guidelines, these are rules and there's penalties. Uh, but so be specific, it's 35, it could be $35,000 fine. You could serve prison time for what you're doing on an airplane. So not just remind people that something bad could happen, be very specific about what the bad thing is that could happen if they, um, if they violated these rules. So people can think about it and make a decision. Like I said, there's plenty of time to peacefully demonstrate when you get off the airplane. Um, you don't need to do that on the airplane. Uh, it's not, no one wants you to. Um, everybody wants to be kind of to themselves, at least I do, on an airplane. There's plenty of time to do a peaceful demonstration. And then if you break the rules on the ground, you know, there are also penalties and sanctions and jail time for, and fines for those things too. So those are the four things just generally, and this, there's probably some other things out there too, but we're um, continuing to reach out. I have a call tomorrow with the Pilots Association to discuss some more ideas. Well, we appreciate you being uh, very, uh, you know, fulsome in the way that you are uh, approaching this problem. There are so many contingencies coming up right now that I don't think anybody uh, could possibly have foreseen. I, I want to talk a little bit about COVID, and and you mentioned that you had had tested positive and that you you had the virus and that you have recovered, and we're very grateful for that. Um, I know that Biden has said his top priority will be getting the virus under control. So I'll ask you, how is Congress planning on working with the administration on this vaccine rollout? It's a huge job. Yeah, it's a huge job. First off, um, having an administration that will work with Congress to roll out the vaccine will be a, a, a benefit and be very different uh, probably from day one. And we all, we all, we've already seen some changes. The, the current administration announced that they're um, going to uh, both loosen up the eligibility to now to 65 and over, uh, as well as saying, um, just, just administer the doses you have and we'll worry about the second doses through the manufacturing process instead of saving doses for someone, instead of saving the second dose for someone who's at a first dose, just use that second dose for the next first dose. That's a Biden idea. Well, the Trump folks have taken that and used it. I'm glad for that. I'm very happy for that. Because um, uh, I, I have, a, I have a, a level of trust in the manufacturing process that we have now on, on the vaccines that will get done. Plus, there are four more vaccines coming. Um, uh, two of them are in phase three right now, I think. And, and the last two are getting there, are going to be are close to doing phase three trials. So we actually have more kinds of vaccines coming too. So I think that's an easy bet to make uh, to um, use those doses, get them administered, um, and that'll be different. Now we passed the COVID-19 uh, legislation at the end of the year, the president did sign it, uh, finally. Uh, and that included, I forget the number, but a very large amount of money for um, contact tracing, for testing, for vac continued vaccine development and vaccine distribution as well. So some of that money will be going to county health departments who are kind of, who are coordinating um, um, and health districts are coordinating the vaccine distribution, uh, but they're really not, in the, they're not giving the shots, but they are coordinating it and, um, 
and are really cash strapped. Cash strapped. And so there's money uh, in that bill that we already passed uh, to kind of begin fulfilling the second, uh, the second set of steps. Um, and I think that Biden-Harris folks will come to Congress very soon after the 20th with, uh, you know, another, you know, COVID 25.0 package. I forget what number we're on, but uh, with another COVID package uh, as well. Sure. And, you know, I, I know that you said that you felt this most recent uh, stimulus bill was a, a down payment. You, you felt that it came up short. Yeah. So what more would you like to see in a, in a future relief bill, specifically for people here in Washington? Well, uh, you know, there, we nationally we haven't done enough on uh, emergency rental assistance. There was $25 billion in the in the bill, which is a lot of money. Anything with a B is a lot of money, um, $25 billion. But when you talk to housing advocates, uh, they were looking for about $100 billion for emergency rental assistance. And that, that emergency rental assistance for, you know, for good or for ill it, um, is, is really um, necessary because this uh, this this rental problem, this eviction problem, uh, really hits um, hard on uh, communities of color. Um, people have been disadvantaged uh, economically, and um, and we really need to step up uh, on that. So that's that's one. Uh, I've been doing a series of calls with uh, superintendents of uh, school districts that are in the second congressional district, and uh, one issue that keeps coming up as well is the digital divide that still exists, and that digital divide um, really hits. Uh, families that are uh, economically um, distressed. And uh, in my district, that can, that can mean uh, someone who's uh, uh, in, you know, a recognized community of color, I mean, the tribes, uh, tribal families. Uh, it can also mean just people who are generally poorer than others. And, you know, we need to step up and, and help those folks. Uh, a third is on hunger. Um, you know, we included a 15% increase for SNAP benefits. That's the food stamp. Um, uh, a 15% increase for SNAP. Uh, we included food stamp eligibility for st college students on federal work study as well. Uh, we need to continue that um, effort um, uh, in, a, in, a, uh, in the next COVID bill. We gotta keep food on people's tables. Uh, we gotta keep people in their homes. Um, and, uh, and, and we need, again, uh, another round of money for contact tracing and testing and vaccines, uh, because that ultimately, all we're doing is sort of keeping things afloat. Uh, getting past the pandemic is what will open the economy. I always say, like, the pandemic response will lead the economic response. So getting these vaccines out um, is going to uh, help us um, get past the pandemic sooner than we're then and faster than we're doing now. A lot more is going to be possible, as you say, because uh, this is the first time that the Democrats controlled the the House, the White House, and the Senate. This is the first time since two thousand nine. In, in a while, yeah. Yeah. Well, you were there. You were in Congress back in two thousand nine. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'll just ask you um, anecdotally. A lot of people feel that Obama may have lost some opportunities in his first one hundred days by unsuccessfully trying to negotiate with Republicans. I wonder if, if you're concerned that Biden might try to do the same or have the events of the, the, the last week kind of upended that situation. I, I think I think um, the the future analysis of the politics is um, is always more accurate in hindsight. So I, I don't know. I don't know how the Biden-Harris team uh, will, will see it. Um, I do think, though, that, um, you know, you're still going to need uh, 60 votes for a lot of things. You will not need 60 votes for judges. 
Um, and we have the bud budget reconciliation rules that allow the use of uh, um, you know 50% plus one for some items. And so I think what the Biden Harris team will be looking at are their, their, is their agenda and what fits in that budget reconciliation process that they can get. And that could include everything from uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, um, shoring up the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it, it could include certain elements of uh, fighting climate change, especially as they um, apply to um, tax incentives on, around renewables. Um, uh, it just could be a variety of things. So I, I think that they're, you know, that that's it's a, it is a political determination they have to make. They're going to look at okay, what can we do, or what is what are we able to do, and then what sort of like what's on the list, and then what can actually can we do. Um, uh, and you know, there's there's no answer to that yet. But I, you know, look, their agenda and is is uh, the, the agenda. I say there because yeah, I'm in Article One of the Constitution. They're they're merely Article Two of the Constitution. Um, the um, the uh, the agenda of the incoming administration is is aggressive and it's progressive. I and mean, John Lewis Voting Rights Act, uh, fighting climate change, which we did a down payment on in the uh, in the appropriations bills at the end of the year, some 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 investment in fighting climate change. We've got um, a major investment in transportation and infrastructure, especially making it cleaner and greener. Hopefully, based on the Moving Forward Act that we already passed in the House of Representatives last July, which made a huge investment. Uh, in um, uh, cleaner and greener infrastructure, not just on transportation, but in water and wastewater and uh, aviation where I sit. <coughs> I mean, there's a lot of room to, to grow on this. So. I mean, what I'm hearing you saying is that the dynamic may not have changed all that much insofar as legislation seems like it was being passed through must-pass bills, budget reconciliation, things like the NDAA and things like that. The major difference is chairmanships, ultimately, and then what can actually be heard uh, on the floor of the Senate. Mitch McConnell, of course, the crypt keeper, would not allow any legislation forward. (laughs) So. I mean, it's self-described. So in light of that, I mean, you mentioned the Moving Forward Act. This is one of your signature uh, bills. You had a big hand in this, as you mentioned, $1.5 trillion in transportation and infrastructure over the next five years. Um, I, I guess I'll just ask you, because I, I really am, am curious your thoughts on this. Do you see that having any chance to pass the Senate? Uh, well, it's certainly a much better chance when you actually have Democrats in control. It's soft to get 60 votes, but you do set the agenda now in the Senate. And you do get to write the legislation in the Senate, um, and so uh, that that I just wouldn't underestimate that leverage. And I just would say on the Moving Forward Act, only 500 billion of that—I said only 500 billion—but was roads, bridges, highways, transportation. Um, thanks. My staff heard me coughing and bringing me water. By, by the way, it's not a COVID cough; it's just a lot of talking cough. So. Um, but the other trillion was investment in school construction. It was investment in uh, water systems and wastewater systems. So we're wasting less water and we're cleaning water more efficiently. Uh, it included um, uh, uh, um, uh, just a variety of other, of other things beyond the classic road bridges, highways, transit. But on transit, it included a major investment in electric transit. It included my legislation to expand the use of uh, electric propulsion for ferries something in our state that we are trying to do. And um, I wanna help 
uh, help fund uh, at the federal level. I've also been very active on on electric transit too in my district, Everett and Bellingham uh, are, are, uh, are examples. So um, the, the opportunities are better. You know, Susan Del Bene, who I'm sure many of you know as well, um, she once asked me, because I was in the majority as you noted, and um, she once asked me what it was like to be in the majority. And I said, it's better. <laughs> She said, no, no, I mean, I said, no, that there's, there's no other way to describe it. It's just better to be in the majority after that. It's like that scene in, um, in, uh, it's a wonderful life after George and Mary get married and they're in the back of the cab and they say, we're going to go here. We're going to go there. We're going to go here. And then, and then they said, then what do we do after that? Who cares? And because it's like, after you have the majority, it's like, you can do a lot. And you, even even in the Senate, where there's 60 votes necessary to do some things, if you got 50% plus one, you can do a lot more than if you have 49. And uh, so uh, now I don't understand the rules of the Senate. Um, they have one rule there, and there are no that's there are no rules. My understanding, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so uh, I'm not going to try to explain to anybody how things happen in the Senate because I don't know. Um, but I do know that. Um, sorry, I'm full of platitudes. But I do know this, the odds of something passing the Senate uh, out of the House are 0% if we don't pass it out of the House. If we pass it out of the House, the odds go from 0 to 100%. So we have to pass stuff out of the House. Let's take this opportunity. Sure. Let's take this opportunity then to talk about that very dynamic, uh, because you were the first member of Congress that we have had the pleasure to speak with since the Democrats uh, had the trifecta. And so uh, I would love to talk with you about Indivisible's legislative agenda. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. So H.R. 1, uh, the, pa- the, the the For the People Act, you were a co-sponsor. You mentioned earlier uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, H.R. 4, co-sponsor on both of those bills. Uh, the third item is D.C. statehood. Um, and we hear rumblings that uh, new kingmaker Senator Joe Manchin uh, says that he is uh, open to considering it. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I support DC statehood. I've supported it uh, in the in the past. Um, it's always been the Senate that's been a hang up on that. Um, well, I say, and the and the Republicans. So the Democrats in the House have supported it uh, largely, and uh, and I, and I support it uh, as well. I've seen, you know, when you see. And I know some folks might support it because, hey, we're going to get two more senator, Democratic senators. Um, yeah, there's a politics of that. I, it's good. But I've also seen how Congress treats Washington, D.C. as a government and therefore uh, how they treat the people of Washington, D.C. And, it's, and frankly, forgive my um, language, it's crappy um, how Congress treats Washington, D.C. Well, we uh, saw a very so, stark example of that last Wednesday, I'm afraid. Uh, right. Yeah. So the mayor of D.C., because the mayor is a mayor, uh, does not control the, the D.C. National Guard. Uh, national, the D.C. National Guard answers to the Department of Defense. And that's because D.C. is a federal federalized city. It's a federal city. It's created that way. Um, but that's why governors like Jay Inslee, he controls the state's National Guard and he can deploy them to he can deploy them within the state. Um, as well as outside the state under under memorandum of agreement. But the mayor doesn't have that. The mayor of D.C. doesn't have that option at all. And so um, uh, I think that j- just for the for the moral reasons about how Congress has treated Washington, D.C. residents, 
citizens of the United States um, that uh, D.C. deserves statehood. The fourth agenda item is court reform. And there are a number of proposals on the table here, including limiting terms for Supreme Court justices, uh, court expansion, expanding the lower lower federal courts, uh, instituting a Supreme Court code of ethics so that Supreme Court justices can't go out and make, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in speeches and luncheons and things like that. It's a lot. So I'll just ask you your thoughts generally on court reform. Um, I, I think there's good arguments on the uh, uh, to um, enforce, uh, to create an institute and enforce a, a code of ethics, uh, much like we have in Congress. Believe it or not, members of Congress, uh, we have a, a you know ethics committee and we have rules we have to follow. And when we don't, uh, we do get in trouble for those. Uh, but we're just flat out not allowed to um, have outside income uh, up to like some, I forget, some amount. I don't even know because I don't really, I don't, I don't have that option and don't exercise it. So I think that's something that the that ought to apply to the Supreme Court justices. Um, as far as like expanding the number of seats in the Supreme Court, you know, look, why don't we just win presidents uh, presidencies and and appoint judges, and um, and eventually uh, we'll come around and we'll get our turn again at the Supreme Court. Uh, that seems um, uh, it's harder work. But this is a democracy, and that's what it requires. It requires harder work. So I'm not, I'm not for expanding the um, numbers on the Supreme Court. I'm for winning presidencies and uh, appointing um, judges that are more in line with how that president appoint judges more in line with how I think. And um, uh, uh, so those are those would be a, a couple of my thoughts. I will say that um, uh, not that I, I shouldn't, but I. I spend a lot more time thinking about other things other than court reform. And so uh, if in the indivisible folks, if y'all have a you know white paper on it, uh, certainly welcome that. I'd love to, love to read it over. I also want to ask you about something in the news recently, and that was the recent hack of uh, government and corporate computer systems that is being attributed to Russia. Uh, you sit on a couple of, of key groups here, the Electronic Warfare Working Group and also the Intelligence and Emerging Threats and Capabilities Subcommittee. It is my understanding that the hackers still have access to everything they broke into. What can you tell us right now about where things stand? Uh, not much. Um, I can't tell you that much. I can tell you that uh, um, we believe, and our intelligence community strongly believes. They they, they never come out and say one um, hundred uh, It's it's a low confidence, medium confidence, and high confidence. So uh, there's a high confidence that this is in fact. Uh, uh, the hacks are Russian-based. Uh, there's always some question about whether it comes out of the Kremlin or these are operations that are just generally being done by the intelligence communities uh, in Russia or if they're individual hackers uh, doing the work. But high confidence is based out of Russia. High confidence that it's done for all the wrong reasons. These were not. Um, this is not practice. Uh, this was uh, for espionage uh, intelligence collection purposes. And um, uh, that, uh, um, as a result, uh, you know, we we need to respond. the 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 challenge you face in what we call attribution—that is, if you attribute the attack—what uh, do you do about it? Now, it's kind of easy to say if if you physically attack me, I can attack you back. If a country physically attacks our country, whatever a missile takes a 
sorry, sorry to be morose here, but a missile that takes down a large building or whatever, kills people, it's clearly attributable and then you can, you can attack. Cyber attacks are much more different because attribution, when you attribute, then you kind of give up some of what you already know and you don't want the bad guy to know that you, what you know and how you know it. So attribution, when you hear an intelligence um, agency attribute an attack, um, it's done on purpose. It's not accidental. It's being done for a deterrence. It's being done to put them on notice. And frankly, if there's a response um, that comes out of the United States, um, I'm probably not going to be the person to tell you that. Fair enough, uh, and and understood. Yeah, um, you are part of but the. I, but I, but I, yeah, I just I'll just back up one more one more thing. Yeah. Uh, just I want to underscore this. This is serious business. We do take it seriously, despite what the president, the current president, how he approaches Russia, the intel community, the cyber intel community, take these very seriously. They take them as seriously as they should, and there is plenty of civilian, meaning congressional. Uh, oversight and involvement in um, discussions about how to approach responses. Thank you for that. And, you know, we have so many questions that are coming in and I'm anxious to get to them. But I will just ask you before we move on. um, We know that Trump has done enormous damage to our international standing. Um, I will ask you, you, do you feel that our allies will come to see him as an aberration? Um, And if so, how do we begin to repair our relationships with our allies? Uh, we are beginning to repair those already. I, I do think that um, that there was a collective sigh of relief among our allies, uh, friends and partners around the world uh, when uh, Biden won. And, uh, and I, as I think, I actually know that. I actually talked to um, members of, of parliaments in uh, NATO countries that uh, the visible relief on, on Zoom calls with them is, is palpable. If, you, if things can be palpable on Zoom, just look at the, look at the relief on the faces of our, our, of our allies in Europe. I, also, I was also on a, uh, a call with the um, OECD, the Organization for Economic and Cooperation and Development. It's a European-based uh, institution that the United States helped found. And it's really focused on economic uh, health of uh, developing country, developed countries, but they do work in developing countries as well. I was on a call with them uh, about a five-hour conference call. Sorry, I don't, I don't, I'm not bragging, I'm just saying. Uh, five-hour conference call on, on artificial intelligence. And sort of this was like, okay, how do we think about AI uh, and its use in our economies in the United States, in Austria, in wherever else, Greece and so on. Just my presence on that call for five hours and I got to, I stayed on and I finally got to speak after four hours and 30 minutes. Just my presence and the three minutes I had, the response I got back from the participants was thank God America is back. We really appreciate you being on this call. Please keep coming, whatever you need. We want, you know, it's that kind of thing. And And that's Europe and then there's Asia. Um, and I'm a co-chair of the Friends in New Zealand caucus, um, as for instance, I uh, do a lot of work with Singapore, U.S.-Singapore relations as well. And this is in addition to all the important, most important work I do at home. But they, you know, they really want the U.S. to be back. 
and they didn't, you know, they, they, they don't want to be seen as the enemy. Like the Trump administration sees our friends as enemies. And that's, yeah. they, they want, they don't want that. They understand that they, they and they want the U S to lead. It's okay for them, for the U S to lead. They don't see us as um, some do, but they don't see us as a hegemon, a, a dominator. They see us as leading on values, you know, on democracy, on openness, on transparency, um, on rule of law. And they want that back. And they, they didn't have that over the last four years. And I think the Biden-Harris team will deliver. And I, I hope that you're right. And what you're saying, I think, is uh, it's it's music to my ears. And I think it is to uh, a lot of people watching and listening as well. Let's get into some audience questions now. We'll start with Lynn. Uh, and I think this is a very important place to start. She says, how can we stop misinformation and outright lies from Fox News, QAnon, and leaders of the U.S. government? Uh, and I think this, is up for obvious reasons, is a very important question. I saw a tweet the other day, uh, and I, I would attribute it if I could, uh, but this was after the insurrection. And it was it was ironic, but, but this... this this person said, and so that's why disinformation is dangerous, right? So, so we know the culmination and where all of this leads, and we know who these actors are. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I, I don't think um, John Locke or Thomas Jefferson ever imagined the pace at which information, misinformation would fly uh, around. Um, the idea that, that public opinion and debate in that public sphere, regardless of the size of the argument, um, you should allow that to happen because eventually a, the truth would would rise. Um, but uh, you know, today with with the ability of that information to and misinformation to move quickly and grab hold, uh, it makes that argument a little less uh, salient. You know, in twenty twenty one, but I will say it is it is. It's difficult for me there to make the opposite argument that somehow we should um, um, uh, prevent people from expressing their opinion as dumb and as stupid and as wrong as it is. Hey, look, I've been told by very reasonable people that my opinions are dumb, stupid, and wrong um, by reasonable people, and um, and some of them voted for me, uh, but uh, but they still get to do that. So we have to consider where that line is, and frankly. Um, we've always said that line doesn't exist. Like the line, the line, the line exists when you uh, rally people to violence. That, that's that's been established, but it doesn't exist where you're just rallying people. So what the president did last week, literally rally people to violence. Um, he he deserves what he's getting uh, by being shut down on, on various social media platforms. I, you know, I don't, I don't have a very good, very good um, solution, except some legislative solutions that we've haven't passed. But, but uh, requiring social media platforms to have the same disclaimers on political speech that I, you know, when I say I, I approve this message, um, uh, that's on radio an ad, a TV ad. Um, I don't have to have that if I if it's on a social media platform. And, but that's where people are getting their messages. So I, people have to take, they have to, we have to force people to take responsibility and we have to force the social media platforms to require responsibility for, for messages that people, people make. And we don't, we don't do that. And there's a, you know, there's probably ways to do that, but it, I'm sorry. It's, I, I don't have a very well thought out answer um, uh, on that. It's an enormously uh, difficult question. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, um, 
I always say, people always say, I have a quick question for you. I said, the question's always quick. <laughs> it's the answer that can take some it's time. It's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's one, and this is one of them. Um, yeah. The answer is very complex and we deserve a lot more thought of it, thought in Congress on it. We had a couple questions about gun control. One came from Julia of Safe and Sane Skagit Gun Violence Prevention. She was asking yeah. uh, if we could expect to see any federal bills to protect our communities from open uh, armed open carry intimidation. A very timely question. And then Lee Fritch asks, did any con- uh, congressional members express a greater empathy or understanding of teachers and students who have to hide under desks because of live shooters or terrorists? Uh, do you think that this will change the discourse on gun control? Um, I would add to that that we also saw some standoffs uh, with some members of Congress uh, this evening who are trying to access the building and refuse to go through the metal detector, including uh, Louis Gohmert and some others. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that um, the uh, uh, I think in the House we'll, we will return to our gun safety agenda. And, uh, but with regards to adding um, what, what's called open carry intimidation, uh, I don't, uh, the first time I've heard that question. And so I, I don't have an answer for that. Uh, I do think that um, returning to our agenda of banning assault rifles, of limiting magazine size, uh, banning internet sales of, of guns, um, uh, certainly funding this, the Centers for Disease Control to continue its research into gun violence as a public health issue. Uh, all those are um, on my list and will continue to be on my list. And, and there's a few, and there's a few others I'm missing. I, I think well. if I may, uh, the, the question is, do you sense that, and this is obviously a, a speculative question, but do you sense in any way that the events of last Wednesday may have any sort of impact on the way that members of Congress are starting to think about these sorts of issues around guns? Uh, my, my, well, I always give an honest answer, so I'm going to say no. I think that uh, there, there are new members, the QAnon members, is, for instance, <laughs> Capitol Hill, and they probably, they, they probably say the lesson of last week is that we need more guns to protect ourselves. Uh, you know, that's why we have the Capitol Police. Um, I, don't want, I, don't want members of, I don't want to rely on members of Congress to protect me. Um, they're, they're the, in fact, they're... They're the last group I want <laughs> to protect me. Um, Cap- I want the Capitol Police. And I will say, you know, Louis Gohmert, Louis Gohmert bypassed the magn- magnetometers tonight, apparently, and uh, he's from Texas, as you might know. And, and he said, I'm a member of Congress. I'm a way to a vote. You cannot detain me. He's right. He's absolutely right. It's not relatively right. He's absolutely right. On a way to a vote, um, the Constitution uh, protects a member of Congress from de- de- being detained in order to vote. And that goes back to uh, King James, who tried to stop the, the nobles from voting in Parliament. And uh, so I, he's, he's right by the Constitution. He's wrong morally. Um, he's trying to make a point. But I, so I want to be clear about that. I think his point is bad, uh, but just from a constitutional perspective, I, I agree with him because I don't want to be detained on the way to a vote by by the by the government. Um, you don't want members of Congress to be detained on the way to vote to exercise the vote on your behalf. Um, 
So I just before, you know, I just say there are other members of Congress to complain about, and Louis Gohmert's one of them, <laughs> uh, for sure. On this point, he's he's more right than wrong on that one. So uh, on the other hand, I I got through the magnetometer twice without it going off. You know, it can be done, and that, that and that's the message I would have to my members of co my colleagues who don't want to go through the magnetometer. It can happen. You can actually go through this and it won't go off and you can go into vote. It's really okay. But they all have to make it, they all have to make a big, you know, every step of their life is a big message, you know? Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid we do um, for all, all of the, <laughs> all of the bad that, that, uh, that entails. Yes, right. Uh, I know I'm going to get a lot of crap from you all because I said something nice about Louis Gohmert. I got it. Can we just, can we just can we just check that box and move on? I, I don't suspect that you will. I, I think you know that your your answer was circumspect. Um, uh, do you have time for two more <laughs> two more questions before we let you go? Sure, so, okay, so we have a, this is a local question has to the, to do with the use. Of, we got a few questions about this. Uh, the use of uh, military use of state lands, uh, I believe, on places like Woodby Island. Tracy asks, uh, will you help us protect the state parks from the Navy war games that they're proposing? They could do irreparable harm to these environments and also endanger the public, visitors, and park staff. I've also heard complaints about noise uh, as well. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I, first off, I'd really encourage the um, uh, folks who have the, the complaints about the use of the state parks or state lands to talk to your state legislators who have uh, unlimited amounts of more authority than I do over what the state parks do. And so that, that's first and foremost. Uh, I would encourage you to do that. Because so, you do have, I would say, you do have agency in it. You do have control. You can actually call them and do that. So I'm not trying to put it off from me. That's where you should go for that. Um, the second, um, with regards to the Navy, I've got a little more um, pull on, on the Navy. And um, we've been focused mainly working with the local community um, on Whidbey and on Lopez Island to conduct, uh, to get real-time noise monitoring done of uh, the Navy growler, uh, what we call field, uh, field carrier landing, FCLPs, field carrier landing practice. And uh, working with Senator Cantwell, we were successful in getting legislation to require that real-time noise monitoring, which is taking place right now. The goal here will be to um, kind of take the real-time noise monitoring, overlay it on the, on the modeling that the Navy uses for noise, which is a government-wide model. It's not a Navy model, it's a government-wide model. And hopefully the result will show that the real-time noise monitoring actually gives a very different picture than what their modeling shows. And then we can you know, go from there to um, uh, maybe force some changes in operations uh, at, uh, at Naval Air Station Woodby Island um, uh, in terms of time, in terms of uh, the space they use and so on. Uh, so that's, that's what our goal is. The, the community that I've worked with has been very supportive of this and I'll continue, we'll continue to press on this. I think this is a good question to end on here. Uh, a viewer asks, uh, what are we going to do? What do we need to do to build a governor, governable coalition to avoid divisions within the party and achieve the progressive priorities that you outlined tonight? Uh, I think that this is really where the rubber meets the road in a lot of ways, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the Democrats ran and won as a, a large tent, a big coalition everywhere, everybody from AOC and Bernie all the way over to Joe Manchin. Uh, and now it comes time to govern. How do you view the prospect of keeping that coalition together? Well, 
I start off by letting folks know we're, we're all de Democrats for different reasons and we're all Democrats for the same reasons. And it's where we're Democrats for the same reasons that we need to start with. A lot of times though, we, we don't start there. We start, we start with, well, you know, some of us want Medicare for all, some of us uh, want the Affordable Care Act uh, as, as a, as a, just as one, for instance. Um, some of us want to support the Green New Deal. Um, others want to, you know, actually pass legislation that fights climate change, that actually functionally fights climate change, and um, uh, and just like skip right to the doing part of it. And so we have this. I've had this debate as well. But the, the truth is, we agree on healthcare for all. Uh, we agree on fighting climate change. We agree on uh, access to the ballot box. We agree that Democrats believe that freedom is a gift and that unless everyone gets to exercise the same freedom that, uh, that say for instance, I get to exercise, then we're not doing enough to, to help people um, be free in this country. Whereas the Republicans think that freedom is something that only for that person and if you can't get it, that's your fault. Uh, so I think from, from the Democratic perspective, uh, we should get bogged down in our beliefs first before we bog down in how we're gonna get them implemented. And that's probably um, what the Biden-Harris team uh, will bring uh, to the White House on behalf of Democrats and, and, you know, and, and help us in the House and the Senate um, rally around those principles first and then you know get on with the policy congressman i, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, i want to wish you uh, continued uh, good health and and i hope that you and your staff stay uh, safe and uh, we wish you all the best and thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight yeah and thank you and i thank indivisible and, and the uh, yeah I, I would be remiss if i didn't mention the specific chapters in the second congressional district and what a great job that they do and they do. I'm not. I'm, they really do. I, I enjoy meeting with them. We've only had to do uh, only been able to do Zoom, Zoom meetings. I look forward to the day when we can maybe have you know coffee at um, Camino Island again, or uh, or over on Woodby on the wharf, or uh, up in Bellingham in the uh, um, there on Railroad Avenue at the coffee shop. There, uh, I look forward to those days uh, again. Until then, wear a mask. Practice social distancing. Get in line for your vaccine. It'll 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 be there eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, sir. Have a great evening. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. My thanks this week to Cap Pipkin, Julian Gievsky, Kevin Jones, Louise Pate, and Robin Gittleman. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <music>